Thanks. Corey and Cole and Tiffany, thank you very much for that. appreciate you encouraging us in our worship and to stand in the love of God. Join me as we continue this morning in prayer. Father, we're going to open your word now. We thank you for the opportunity to um, be a people who have the freedom to open your word. Lord, encourage us in that freedom, encourage us to act on that freedom on a regular basis, but specifically this morning. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that the word would speak to us, that we might be the people you have called us to be. In the name of Jesus, amen. I don't know what the longest trip you've ever taken travel time-wise has ever been. The first time I went to Africa in 1999, I hooked up with a really, really, really bad travel agent. And so this was my routing from Colorado to get to Africa where I needed to go. She had me go from uh, the airport in Denver, Colorado, to Minneapolis, to Boston, to Amsterdam, to Nairobi, Kenya, to Lilongwe, Malawi, then to Lusaka in Zambia, which is where I was going to be for several weeks. On the way back, I went exactly the same way, that most roundabout trip. It took more hours than I would care to share on this particular Sunday morning. The second trip I made to Africa a couple of years later, I had a better travel agent. She booked me uh uh, from Denver, Colorado to London to Lusaka with no intermediate stops anywhere along the way. The Christian life, folks, is a, a, is a long, long journey. It's more like my first trip to Zambia than my second trip to Zambia. And what do people need along the way on a very long and winding, circuitous journey, this journey that we call Christian faith? What do we need along the way? Lots of things. But in particular this morning, I want to talk about this one thing that I believe we all need, and that's encouragement. That's why in this passage that we're going to unpack today in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to this particular church and he talks to believers who have been on a long and winding journey with him, a difficult journey with him, and he encourages them to persevere. And not persevering in their own strength and mustering their own wherewithal to get through each and every day that came their way. No, to persevere in the strength that comes from being fully rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Believers, folks, should persevere. And we are enabled to do that as we get encouragement from our identity in Jesus. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Revelation again, chapter 3 again, but I'm going to read to you verses 7 through 13. I want to encourage you to be reading along with me. If you're watching on the website, you can just go to the right of the picture. There's a translation option, Bible translation option there for you to select and follow along, but you can, of course, open up your own Bible and follow along with me. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. I'm going to read down to verse 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down, fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, 
I will also keep keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, six churches in to this seven-church tour, I'm hopeful that by now we have grabbed a hold of the pattern, this kind of blueprint that Jesus uses to each of these particular seven seven churches in ancient Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, not Sardis, Kansas, Sardis, Philadelphia, not in Pennsylvania, and Laodicea. The Lord follows this very similar pattern when he talks to each of these churches. He gives them some information about himself, some particular understanding of a particular facet about himself. He gives some commendable things, things that we can emulate, things that we can imitate, things that we can follow in our own walk with the Lord, and then some things to avoid and some reasons why we should avoid those things. That's the pattern. We've done it six times now. We're going to do it one more time next Sunday, Lord willing, as we hit the church in Laodicea. But today, at the church in Philadelphia, we learn another bit more about Jesus in verses 7 and the first part of 8. He is, according to this passage, he is holy. You and I, we don't have a real understanding of the notion of holiness because we hardly ever see it in the way that it's being used here. Holiness here is without spot or blemish. Holiness here is completely free of any kind of sinful taint. Holiness here is, again, completely and utterly clean. And because he's holy, he is also able to evaluate these churches. He is able to look into these churches and see what they really are and evaluate them because he has the standard of perfection. He's also, in this passage, described as true. He's reliable. And these are character descriptions of Jesus. Just a couple, but the couple that he thinks are particularly pertinent to this church here in Philadelphia. And then it says, he has the key of David. Just a reminder, right, from the Christmas story, which wasn't too awful long ago. It was before the frozen tundra descended on the city of Emporia, Kansas. But just a little while ago in December, we heard ourselves that we thought it was cold on Christmas Eve. We had no idea what cold was really like. Nonetheless, I digress. We heard on Christmas that Jesus comes to us. He's the promised kingly descendant of David. And he is the one, Jesus is the one who has the keys to the kingdom. And when he opens it up, no one can shut it. Jesus. So what's that mean? This one who has the key to the kingdom. It means he's absolutely sovereign. He has authority. He has power. He does what he purposes to do. So what can we take away from this? Just this little snippet of information about Jesus today, we can take away that we can relax in the care of the one who is absolutely reliable, the one who holds absolute power, who loves us, and he is in the business of bringing about his purposes for us. We don't have to worry about how it's going to ultimately turn out. I can remember in the fall of my senior year in high school, in the year 2000, (laughs) 
Hey, there was a presidential election that year as well. And I stayed up till three in the morning wondering how the election was going to turn out. And it turned out we had to wait several weeks uh, for a Supreme Court ruling to find out that George W. Bush was going to be president of the United States. Worry, worry, worry. How's it going to turn out? Who is it going to be the boss? What's going to happen? With Jesus, we don't have to worry about how things are going to ultimately turn out. The scriptures here underscore for us. Jesus says about himself, he is the absolute reliable one. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, um, there are few people, I can probably count them on the fingers of one hand, who I can count on as being absolutely reliable, who will be there for me no matter what. Jesus says, even if that number for you personally is zero with respect to the people around you, he is always So, when this completely reliable one turns to speak to the particulars of the church at Philadelphia, we know that in verse 8, they have done something really worth celebrating. They've done really, really well. There's been pressure on this church. There's been persecution on this church. And even though there has been pressure and persecution, they have hung in there. They've kept his word. They've not denied his name. I don't know again about you, but I think sometimes we are forever letting the circumstances of the moment cloud our perspective and dim our memories with respect to those spectacular things that have come our way. Now, you know by now that I'm more a baseball guy than a football guy. Well, actually, I'm not a football guy at all. Um, But last Sunday, apparently there was a big game. Uh, The Super Bowl which to me conjures up images of oatmeal. But nonetheless, the Super Bowl, which a, recent, which a local team went to and apparently didn't do as well as they wanted to, in the wake of that, well, failure, people were dejected. But that momentary de- dejection, that momentary disappointment, think about the power that we give to it. Because wasn't it just... Last year, that that very same team won the Super Bowl, which they hadn't won uh, since 1970. So we we do this thing. We, We do this thing where we let this momentary, troublesome circumstance cloud our judgment, cloud our recollection of the power and the goodness that's available to us. And I I do this in my own life, my own walk with Jesus. Man, I run into some difficult circumstance and it's all, oh, woe is me, the world's coming to an end, it's such a terrible thing, forgetting that just the day before and for sure the day after, Jesus is there, he's still reliable, he's still the one who is holding us in the palm of his hand to ensure that his purposes are accomplished in us and through us. Sure, we have moments of loss, But those moments of loss should not keep us from being reminded about the many, many moments of celebration, both the ones we've had in kind of a temporal sense here and the one we're looking forward to when we are face-to-face with Jesus in heaven. A guy named Tony Campolo, uh, author, pastor, wrote a book several years ago. I've quoted to you once or twice here, but I love the title of this book, The book's title is The Kingdom of God is a Party. 
It's not some somber, oh, woe is me. It's not some dirge-like procession down the street. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, video of a funeral in New Orleans, pre-pandemic, funeral in New Orleans. On the way to the cemetery, they're always playing horns and, and, and other instruments. They're playing these dirge-like, drag your feet down the road, get to the cemetery, get it done kind of songs. But on the way back, that's not what they're playing. They jazz it up. When the saints go marching in, because the realization is true that that moment that we step from this world into the next world, that moment as believers in Jesus, when we we step from this world to seeing him face to face, we get in on the party. The kingdom of God is a party. And so we we should, I think we should, in these moments, even tough moments, even in pandemic moments, even in freezing cold, it's got to be too stinking cold to walk outside temperature, even in these moments, we should have this realization that what we have in Christ surpasses all that we face on a day-to-day basis. Which, in this passage, leads us to the place I'm going to call Candyland. I don't know if you've ever seen those little boxes of uh, Whitman's chocolates. They call them the Whitman's samplers. And you open up the box, and it's not all the same kind of candy. There's different kinds of candy that you can try. There's chocolate-covered caramel, which I love. There's some chocolate-covered peanut candies, which I love. There's some other candies in there, coconut, which I don't love. But nonetheless, there's this sampler of the different kinds of chocolate. Well, in this passage here, Jesus gives this church at Philadelphia a little bit of a Whitman's sampler of rewards. Look at it. Verse 9. Jesus is going to acknowledge them as God's own. And he's not only going to do this in some quiet and subtle way. But everybody who has mocked the name of Jesus, everybody who has mocked these people for believing in Jesus, they're going to see, uh-oh, Jesus was serious about these people. This is a true thing. And it says also in verse 10 that he's going to keep them through an hour of trial that's coming. Now, I don't know what specific hour of trial that Jesus was referring to here, but nonetheless, he was going to, Take them through it. And then, verse 11. No one can take their crown. Back in the church at Smyrna, this was the victory wreath, this crown. I don't know if you remember Lance Armstrong, bicyclist in the Tour de France. Um, He set a record. He won the Tour de France seven times between 1999 and 2005. Seven times. But in the year 2012, his titles were stripped away because of him using performance enhancement drugs and encouraging his teammates to do so as well. Great titles stripped away. Great standing stripped away. But those in this passage, those who are held by Jesus, we can never have our standing stripped away. We can never have our title as God's beloved children stripped away. We will be permanently in the presence of God. And then in verse 12, there's this business about this naming thing that goes on. 
The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. There's this naming thing that goes on. When I was in the military one time, I was stationed at uh, the headquarters of the North American Aerospace Defense Command in Colorado Springs, NORAD. And I was on the planning staff there, and our boss was a guy named General Ulm. Now, General Ulm had this habit of referring to people by their last names. He didn't really get to know our first names. Didn't really matter to him what our first names were as far as he was concerned. We didn't even need to have first names. He just referred to us by our last names. So one day I'm standing in a group of about three or four other staff officers and the general walks up to us and he starts chatting away with us, you know, making small talk and telling jokes that weren't really funny at all, but we laughed at anyway because, you know, he was the general. And he keeps talking to everybody and every time he talks to somebody, he says their name. There was a guy named Jim Harold there. He taught, referred to him as Harold. There was a guy named, uh, named Greg Moulazon there. He referred to him as Moulazon. And he's having this conversation. But every time he said something to me, he said major. He didn't refer to me by my name. And this went on for like 15 or 20 minutes. I'm getting really puzzled about this. And finally, the general, general had had enough uh, small talk. Uh, and while he's doing this, by the way, whenever he says major, he gives me that look. You know that look. It's the look you've gotten from your mom or your dad when you've done something wrong. It's the look you've gotten from your professor when you've handed in something that you know is substandard. And they give it back to you. They give you the look. The general kept giving me the look. Every time he said major, he gave me the look. And so finally, after 10 or 15 minutes of chit-chat, he walked away. And I said to my pals, I said, what is the deal? He kept calling all of you by your names. He kept referring to me as major. I was a major at the time. And one of my friends, the guy named Jim Harold, he looked at me and he said, Hey, dummy, you don't have your name tag on today. Oops. Oops. But when Jesus gives us a name tag, it never gets taken away. When Jesus gives us a name tag, it's clear that we have been permanently attached to him. And he's not going to call us by some random generic category. He's not going to say, hey, Christian, hey, believer. He's going to call us by the name that he has given to us, this name that has his name on it. Jesus' new name, the vindicated Redeemer's new name. Still in the military when we were battle dress uniform, our BDUs, or fatigues, they called them back in the olden days. Over one of our pockets was stitched four letters, USAF, for me, United States Air Force. It indicated to everybody, whether they knew me personally or not, that I was part of this larger thing. You and I, from this passage here, Jesus says, you and I, we are part of this larger thing and we have this name on us. Nobody can take it away. We are marked permanently and irrevocably as belonging to him. And this encouragement comes through this kind of eternal perspective, the encouragement to, to hang in there. Verse 10, to endure patiently. Verse 11, to hold on. We often just quit too stinking soon. When Jesus says, hang in there, hang in there, 
These people knew what the Apostle Paul was talking about. When he talked to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he says, We know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Encouragement. Encouragement. Now, encouragement ranges in magnitude and impact. It can be some small but really helpful thing like uh, Carol Patterson's congregational care team getting together, making valentines for everybody on the planet and sending them all out. Just a little word of encouragement. I did mention to Pastor Laura when she was making some of these valentines that, you know, all this tedious cutting and pasting and crafting and putting the little things here and there, little sparklies and all the rest of that stuff. I said, you know, I can get a box of 50 Valentines at the dollar store for like a dollar. But it was the, it's the love that's invested in the making of the Valentine that communicates just a little bit of encouragement. And maybe you've heard of the, the author J.R.R. Tolkien and his tome, The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you know that that book was originally designed by Tolkien to be a story for his kids. That's why he was writing it. But he was with a group of people who met together on a regular basis called the Inklings. They got together to hear hear each other's uh, writings and to encourage one another. And another famous author, C.S. Lewis, said to Tolkien, you know what? You need to keep at that thing. You need to publish that thing. And later on, Tolkien's son wrote in a letter that the reason Tolkien persevered to get that work done was because of the encouragement he got from Lewis. Or perhaps you're more musically inclined and you've heard of the, uh, the composer Mozart, who many people believe may be the greatest composer who ever lived. Well, when Mozart was playing one time, one of his compositions in Paris... Another composer who at the time was 17 years old. He'd written some stuff. He didn't know if it was very good. His his heart's desire was for Mozart to hear some of what he had written. And so it it, somehow circumstances turned out that Mozart did hear this young person's composition. And he said to him, man, probably didn't say man. He said, you're good to Ludwig von Beethoven, who went on to become an equally great composer. Encouragement. Officer training school, there was a group of us called a flight of about 20 people cruising through officer training school together. At about halfway through the the endeavor there at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, about halfway through, one of our teammates, a young man named Barry, and it was mid-course, you know, we, we knew it was hard, and, uh, but we could see the end. We marched together, we sweat together, we complained together, we mastered some skills together. But Barry said, no, nah, I'm going to quit. It's just too hard, I'm out. And we said, listen, we pleaded with him, Barry, just hold on. Man, we will help you make it. But he left anyway. But that message, hold on, I'm going to help you make it. That's the message that Jesus is giving us in this passage. Just hold on. 
I'll help you make it. How do I know that? Well, we're about to enter the season of Lent, the anticipation of the sacrifice of Jesus. How do I know that he's invested in helping us, empowering us, encouraging us to persevere? Man, look at the cross. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Man, look at the cross. You want to know uh, how to help other people and encourage them? Sure, a helpful word along the way is nice, but man, point them to the cross. Because when Jesus says, I'm here to encourage you, it's not some fluffy marshmallow fluff kind of uh, topping to some kind of ice cream sundae kind of help. No. When Jesus says, I'm here to help you hold on, the guarantee is made by the cross. The guarantee is made by his decision to lay down his life on your behalf and on my behalf so that we could embrace him in faith, get that new name tag, and be held up no matter what comes our way. I don't care if it's a pandemic or it's cold or the Chiefs lost the Super Bowl or some other world catastrophe, Jesus says, man, hold on. I've got you in this. Be encouraged. Pray with me. Father,